Welcome to another episode of We Are Carbon. I'm Helen Fisher and I'm joined by Christo Miliotis for a discussion where we dive deeper into the life within soil. There's no quick way to introduce Christo. As a doctor of medicine, an entrepreneur, a researcher and a scientist of the soil, his experience is broad. And I really appreciate the combined perspective that this means he's able to bring. It's fair to say that many scientists maintain a tight focus, but Christo books this trend and offers us a very holistic understanding of how the tiny microbial life under our feet relates to climate, food, and even human health. We've heard so much in our previous interviews about the role and significance of healthy soil. We know that healthy soil is alive, but what does that mean? It's now time to understand this further. It's a topic that I've become personally fascinated with, and like many things that we touch upon throughout this project, the concepts at first can seem very novel. It kind of makes you feel like we've been doing everything in the world back to front. Perhaps we have. So as we learn why it's time to start loving bacteria, you can also find a quick one-minute animation that introduces this interview to help give you a firmer grasp of what we're covering. You can find it on Instagram at wearecarbon.earth. Right, let's get stuck in. Hello, Christo. Thank you so much for joining me today. And we are generally talking about soil and its incredible role in sequestering carbon. Uh, I wonder if you could just start by introducing yourself very briefly and the work that you do in this area. Yeah, well, firstly, thank you for inviting me to to this recording. Uh, it is obviously a very, very important uh, topic and we really are at the crossroads. This is probably the critical decade to really do effective uh, change to the way we farm and uh, look after the environment Obviously, we've lost a lot of years with, uh, you know, debates usually fueled by the fossil fuel industry. And, uh, and um, you know, it's, it's really quite tragic. I believe we're in really a crisis point and it hopefully will stimulate us to, to make, bring about change of practice in a way that incentivizes farmers, not only that, that they want to care for their land in a better way, but they actually get financially rewarded. And perhaps we can talk about that as part of the strategy. My background, well, I uh, I actually was working as a market gardener in 1971. That makes me, qualifies me as a dinosaur. I'm from the, I'm from the dinosaur generation. And um, I, we were the first to produce organic food into the um, Sydney market. Uh, that was a that was my entree into the the universe city. Uh, when you work with soil, you're not really just working with soil. You're working with a totality of how soil is the interface between sky, water, life, food, and so on. And how we treat the soil really has a huge impact on all those other spheres, the hydrosphere, the biosphere, the oceans, our food, how we care for animals, how we, you know, develop, uh, grow food for, for health. Sadly, farmers are currently rewarded by the number of kilograms of the food. It's got nothing to do with the quality of the food. And the way you can push a plant to grow is through nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, but that is only three elements of which a plant requires for a healthy nutritional base. And consequently, a number of things happen by using the N NPK system. At a minimum, we need to be talking about NPKC, and C stands for carbon, and I, I would add to that silica, because the cell wall of a plant is silica-based. Of course, all the trace elements. But um, for me, soil is what we work with. But I work with a different perspectives about how we care for the land. And I'm very much influenced by Rudolf Steiner, who was the father, if you like, of, of biodynamics, which is the longest existing 
regenerative agriculture system. It preceded the organic movement, in fact. And he, many years ago, he delivered a course in 1924, and he, he warned at the time when artificial fertilisers were coming into play that this would wreak havoc. And we see that clearly today. I am an international soil consultant. I've worked primarily in China, but also other countries like um, Greece, where my forebears came from. And um, you see throughout these soils which are suffocated because they've lost soil structure, they're, they're degraded. And what's happening is that more, the more uh, fertilizer you put on, the return is less and less. Production's going up, but the profit of the farm is going down. So why is that? Well, essentially, nutrients need to be delivered by microbes. And when you bypass the normal way in which a plant gets fertilized, that is through what's called the hair roots, where it's got a very small diameter, which increases the amount of surface area in, in, in proportion to the diameter. So the finer the hair root, the, the more surface area. And that surface area is interacting with the soil microbiome. And those microbes, have, they mine, harvest and deliver nutrients to the plant in a very regulated way. It's so finely regulated that a plant will release certain substances which will encourage those specific microbes which will mobilize those specific nutrients that the plant needs. In fact, if a plant needs a calcium molecule through particularly the fungal thread networks, it can take that calcium molecule from 200 meters away. So there's a whole underworld, a, a fabric of, of highways, nutritional highways and communication highways that's very similar to our brain structure in that we know that the brain needs neurotransmitters for signaling. And similarly, plants use chemical signaling to say, if one plant gets eaten by a pest, it will make certain bitter substances to discourage that pest. And that will then send that message to all the neighboring plants via this fungal network, to make the same bitter substances. It just so happens those bitter substances are also specifically anti-cancer. And so what we're doing doesn't make sense even in an economical way. We squand we've basically got 60 years left of soil. In Australia, if you produce a tonne of wheat, you're exporting to the environment about 14 tonnes of, of topsoil. And the practice of leaving the soil bare is really the first thing that needs to happen in agriculture, which is happening more and more, is to always keep all of the soil covered all of the time with cover crops and intercropping and so on. Um, that stops the erosion. It stops the water loss. It uh, doesn't necessarily compete with the cash crop. And it's a much more efficient way of... Um, because if you look in nature where there's, there's forests, the, the, you know, there's no monoculture in forests. And you see this vigorous growth. And there's no fertilizer. It hasn't been done for centuries. And yet there's this huge forest. So we've got that wrong. In regard to linking up agricultural practice with climate change, one of the problems is that if you use nitrogen fertilizer, by the way, nitrogen's 78% of the atmosphere and can be harvested by nitrogen-fixing microbes free, um, those nitrogen fertilizers do a number of destructive things. One of them is that at best, only 30% of the nitrogen goes into the plant. That means 70% and up to 90% goes into the waterways, causing um, eutrophication, algal blooms, dead zones, uh, aquatic uh, life is killed off and so on. The other component goes to the atmosphere when the nitrogen gets oxidized to nitrous oxide which is 296 times more powerful as a greenhouse gas than CO2. So it's a really reckless practice. 
Also, the nitrous oxide can be altered further in the stratosphere to, to erode the ozone layer, which is diminishing, even though there's been attempts to reverse that, which has been partially successful. So nitrous oxide is not good. We know that nitrates in water cause bladder cancer and many other things. And I mentioned before, if you artificially feed and force feed a plant, you actually uh, attract insects. Um, that imbalance of nutrition creates a weakened plant and the plant puts out particular frequencies which the compound eye of the insect sees and it's saying, oh, that's my job to get rid of those weak plants because, I mean, I'm astromorphizing here, but basically you could say that they, their job is to weed out those weak plants before they reproduce. And what would the problem is not pests. The problem is pesticide, and we're shooting the messenger. We're not listening to the pest saying, why are you there in the first place? So and we know that it causes a number of disturbances to neurological functioning and neurodegenerative diseases and even neuropsychiatric diseases as in depression and so on. So it's a very uneconomical system and very wasteful. Even the energy expenditure in producing the fertilizer in the first place is high intensity, carbon intensive. Then you transport the fertilizer and yet 79%, 78% of nitrogen is in the atmosphere. Steiner came up with this concept, which is kind of would turn farming on its head, literally, and I'll explain that in a couple of ways. But the first thing is, if I was to ask the audience the question, what percentage of the dry weight of the plant came from the soil? What I mean by dry weight, we know that a plant is 70% water. If you dehydrate it, what's left behind? The physical matter left behind the minerals, etc., left behind. What percentage came from the soil? And the surprising fact is only 5%. Yeah, so we need, I mean, the clearest examples is we know carbon dioxide is ingested or inhaled rather by the plant and converts that into carbohydrates. So we know that plants need have sugars. We know that the 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 nitrogen component which makes proteins can come from the atmosphere but strangely and what is really not widely understood is that the trace elements also come from the atmosphere how so we know that the ocean has all the trace elements under the sun literally and the 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 ocean spray or when the seawater is evaporated it's not just H2O, there's all these trace elements in very small amounts. And nature has it so that particular weeds or plants concentrate their receptors for particular nutrients. So in the Australian context, we have a weed called Patterson's Curse. And Patterson's Curse grows uh, in copper-deficient soil. So it's it's a bit of a leap of faith if I ask the question, what's, con what's concentrated in Patterson's Curse? And yes, it's copper. So the nature is trying to balance the soil, but we're getting in the way all the time. We're not reading the signs. We're shooting the messenger and we're, we're basically waging war against nature rather than becoming an ally and a steward of nature and work with natural economical systems, which has a lot of wisdom. What you're describing is a incredibly balanced system, a very complicated system with many, many factors where everything's got a relationship to everything else. And we have come along and vastly oversimplified it. Like to say we've oversimplified feeding plants is an understatement. Um, yeah. you know, we're gonna give them lots of nitrogen and yeah, what you're describing is uh, phenomenally complex compared to that. Uh, yes, it is. But I think it's applying certain principles. And I remember going to a lecture, uh, a, a, a visiting lecture from overseas, who was an expert in nitrogen. And the EPA in America said we have to stop using so much nitrogen because of the cancer and the pollution and the dead zones and so on. And he gave a very, very detailed analysis of 
the pulses at what time of the growth cycle do you need more nitrogen and when less and what genetics will increase the efficiency of the utilization of the nitrogen and so on and so on. And at the end, I said, thank you for that very erudite, detailed lecture. However, why is it we're putting artificial fertilizer or synthetic fertilizer on the soil when 78% of the nitrous in the atmosphere and in Brazil they have the practice where they if they grow corn which is nitrogen heavy in terms of its need you grow legumes like beans which can even grow up the stalk of the corn and and they do it very successfully he said well I haven't heard about that and besides it, it won't necessarily deliver the nitrogen to the corn well the reality is when I spoke about those networks that almost like neuronal networks in under the ground if a plant and this has been worked out that that plants communicate to each other and if a plant's deficient in something and if they're they have a good relationship with each other they get on well with their neighbors those those um, beans will deliver the nitrogen to the corn and and you know, there's probably a trade-off. Uh, it's, it's you know, if you're looking at the stock market and trading on a trading floor, there's a lot of trading going on. And I assume that the corn, which is able to synthesize a lot of carbohydrates, is helping the microbes that feed that particular bean plant. So we, are, we need to really understand uh, symbiotic relationships and, 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 and the harmonies that work in the underground world beneath our feet. And we know that you actually increase yields by combining crops together rather than having monoculture, which is an incredibly wasteful system of growing. Yeah, very input intensive, uh, very energy intensive. And as you said, you're describing a system that is each impacting everything around it. So what we're putting into the soil is in fact in affecting our health too in terms of cancers and um, possibly a lot of unknown and unidentified problems as well and then the health of the oceans so we have to really acknowledge that this is all connected and start seeing it as a whole rather than as a, a separate um, sort of input-based system with regards to climate change, we talk uh, or we hear an, a significant focus upon the atmosphere and the gases up in the atmosphere, as in there are too many. You know, we've, we've put too many emissions up there. You're talking that the plants are actually using those as a resource to grow. So is this something that we can help balance using the plants? Potentially, yes. Um, I'm... I, I like the fact you included oceans because we can't uh, directly influence the oceans to a greater degree, but we've got control of the terrestrial sphere, the soil. Um, it's interesting that with the extensive bushfires in Australia, uh, there's recent studies done which showed that the ash, which has nutrients in it, have gone into the atmosphere, into the oceans, and caused massive algal blooms which have sequestered carbon. So there is a kind of a balancing act to a degree. I'm not saying that's a good thing, but we need to notice these 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 backup systems that uh, that nature has and 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 to be attentive to that and it's great the detail of science that's coming. But to take up what you uh, alluded to Yes, all of the greenhouse gases, let's take carbon dioxide. Well, that's plant food. That's what plants make carbohydrates in. Uh, let's take, uh, we talked about nitrogen. Now, by not using nitrogen fertilizers and by not emitting nitrous oxide and harvesting the nitrogen from the atmosphere through microbes, we can get the N part of the NPK C system. Um, with regard to methane, uh, obviously you can also try and reduce the emissions and there's been work done in Australia with a particular seaweed or algae which can reduce methane emissions in cows uh, by up to 95%, about 250 grams in the feed per day. 
and I want to work with a system to put a liquefied uh, seaweed into the water troughs. So when you when you've got large cattle stations, you can still get the seaweed to them and reduce the methane that way. Uh, so we can reduce methane, but at the same time, we can also um, use what's called there are meth methanotropes, meaning they take methane out of the atmosphere, and there's methanogens, and that's what happens in the rumen of the cow producing methane. You know, they mainly belch methane. So there are soil microbes which are methanotropes and can harvest the methane. So we can harvest the carbon, we can harvest the nitrogen, we can harvest the methane, and the methane through microbial biochemical transformation can ultimately lead to nitrogen source as well. There's a few steps there, but I won't go into that deeper. But the point is we can harvest the trace elements, we can harvest the macro elements of NPK and, and um, well, not so much K, but certainly um, carbon and, and nitrogen and phosphorus to a degree which I've spoken about. Uh, to be clear, phosphorus, uh, the, the two main things that build soil, if you take the idea that soil itself is not only a certain proportion is created from rock, through what's called pedogenesis, the weathering of rock, usually from lichens and, you know, slow weathering of, of carbonic acid in water and so on. The major proportion of the elements came from plants and made available to the soil matrix through microbes. So plants and microbes build healthy, functioning, nutritious soil. And, and uh, putting chemicals and force-feeding a plant with nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium is just so wrong. And I'll explain it further. I referred before to the little fine hair, hair roots. There's two kinds of roots. There's the thicker roots, which are more um, anchor the plant in the soil. And then off those main roots is the fine hair roots. The other function of those thicker root systems, because they've got a, a, a wider diameter and they've got um, high concentrates of sugars and so on, there's a particular osmotic gradient whereby water is sucked into the, the root system. So they're the drinking straws of the root. Now, if you have a water-soluble uh, fertilizer, that's going to go through the wrong delivery uh, and that basically, uh, to put it crudely, stuffs up the whole plant. I mean, you're basically force-feeding a plant. What happens is you get bloated plant cells. They're weak, they're vulnerable, they're prone to disease, they're prone to insects, and they're not nutritious. So when people say, oh, organics is more expensive, well, do you want to pay for salt and water? And no wonder food doesn't taste so and no wonder kids don't like eating vegetables because it's just not they're still got they're still sensitive in their palate unless they've been corrupted with McDonald's, etc. But earlier on they've still got an instinctive sense of what tastes good. And if you give a child a choice between a healthy carrot and a and a and a carrot that's been bloated with, with water and mineral salts, they will love that organic carrot. They will they will love it. And, and and the parents says, he's never eaten carrots before, <laughs> you know. So we really um, do a disservice, particularly to growing children, uh, by having these artificially grown foods. It's just wrong, and it has disastrous consequences, and it robs us of true nutrition, and it destroys the soil. Carbon is vital for – carbon's the building block of life, and, and water is the sustainer or bearer of life. And they exist, they coexist, like, you know, there's a marriage there. And what I'm getting at is that we have, when we use water-soluble fertilisers, we basically burn up this incredible, important natural capital called soil carbon. 
of which the whole life of the soil revolves around. And it, it consumes the carbon in a ratio of 1 to 12, meaning for every kilogram of nitrogen fertilizer you put on the soil, you consume 12 kilograms of carbon, which gets oxidized and goes to the atmosphere. It's like burning a fossil fuel. So okay, so you've just said one kilogram correct. destroys 12 kilograms. Yes, correct. Yeah, that is, wow. And now we compound that further. I use the analogy that this, these fungal networks, which are communication networks and nutritional networks, um, is, is a kind of parallel to our own brain structure and, and nerves. Now, when we use the plough, it's coming down the soil. It's like doing a lobotomy. The soil becomes dumbed down and loses its intelligence and its communication systems, and that, that 200 metres away calcium can't be got anymore because you cut the communicate, you cut the nerves of the soil. It, I, so the symbiotic relationship between the plants and all the microbes is just has got no transportation network. Yeah, I, I see soil as sentient. It has its own being. And basically everything, fertilizers, herbicides, fungicides, pesticides, everything else aside is basically anti-life and, and, and is killing the soil. And, and the soil is not only being killed, but the by incising the soil with the plough, you break up the all-important soil structure, which I'll go into, in again, in relation to climate change, and you that carbon that's there is exposed to oxygen and, of course, it forms carbon dioxide. So it's like burning fossil fuels, right? To so actually plough the field is correct. essentially burning fossil fuels, setting well, up emissions. Correct. So what's the way out of that is uh, I, call, I talk, it's not something I've termed, but one of the most restorative things we can do for the planet is for a farmer to grow humus. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't know what humus is anymore, but the word human, humility, humor has the same derivative, which is soil or, or death. Yeah. So humus really an incredibly complex fabric of life which has everything. It's the lungs of the soil. It's the, it's the kidneys of the soil. It's the nutritional distributor, like the liver distributes nutrients of the soil. It's, it's, um, it has many or, organ functions. That's where the word organic comes from. And uh, so... We, we basically uh, uh, have to understand that when Steiner talks about the farm and you walk on the farm, he says you, you're walking in the belly of the farm. When I said that the actual nutrition comes from the atmosphere at 95%, you're in the metabolic region of the, of the farm. Now, when you're walking on the soil, the... the the only test you need to do, and you can do this blindfolded, is if the soil has a spring, like a sponge, like a, a sprung floor. And as opposed to concrete. Well, as opposed to concrete. And everything we do with chemical fertilizers and agrochemicals and plowing destroys that crumb, we call it crumb or tilth of the soil, and it loses its sponginess. So Steiner talks about if we have the metabolism above the ground, he talks about the upside-down plant, that the human the plant is an upside-down human being. And I referred to the root system being connected to our nerves, our brain. Okay. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, and there's a lot more detail there, which I find fascinating. You've got to read my book. <laughs> but uh, then when you go, when you're walking on the farm itself, the soil, he said one should cultivate the feeling that you're walking on the diaphragm of the earth. If you're walking on the diaphragm of the earth and, you, and the plant is an upside-down man, then the, what's, what's 
above the diaphragm in the human being or below the diaphragm in the, in the plant kingdom is the lung. And so the soil carbon sponge is the microbes actually are co-creators. They create the air sacs. They actually create the lung organ. And when you have a spongy soil, it can breathe. Our soils currently are on life support and intravenous drips for nutrition. And we need to take them off the resuscitator and we need to stop the ploughing and we need to use microbes, these micro-engineers, to build this, this crumb structure, this air sacs, this lung-like structure so the soils breathe again. But at the same time, in the bacteria make what we call microaggregates and the fungi make what's called macroaggregates and an aggregate has spaces between. So it can breathe, the soil can breathe. But more importantly, the more carbon you have in the structured way that's created by these architects, like Gothic cathedrals, these beautiful dome-like structures that are in the soil, these, these pore spaces, um, it means that... If you have 100 drops of rain, 97%, 97 of those drops goes into the soil and only three drops is lost. And the critical thing in a climate challenge future is the scarcity of water. And by for every 1% that we build, uh, we build the soil carbon sponge. In other words, for every 1% increase in soil carbon in a structured way, the soil increases its water holding capacity by a phenomenal 144,000 litres per hectare. Wow. But extrapolate. So the impacts are huge. Yeah. Extrapolate further for every litre of water that's in the ground, that condensed from 1.76 litres of water vapour. And you'll, you'll understand the critical significance of this. That means if you multiply 144,000 by 1.76, it turns out to be 435,400 litres of water vapour. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not, I'm not, I have, I'm, no, I'm, I'm going to go with you on that. I'm not going to question your maths. My memory, but anyhow, it's, it's, it's a significant amount. Now, why is that important? Water is the thermostat of the planet and it has been for millennia. And it, it, there's a lot of heat transfer happening through the, the physics of, of, of water. It's, 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 you know, it's an extraordinary substance. And if that, you put it this way, if you have a, a pot of water and it's being, you're cooking with gas, you're boiling the water with gas, and the gas in this case is, anthropogenic gases, you know, right? And you're turning up the gas. What happens when you turn up the gas? You produce water vapour at a faster and greater rate. So in actual fact, some calculations suggest that 70% of the water sur Earth's surface is water, the, the ocean bodies of water. When you turn up the anthropogenic gases, you're producing more water vapour and that has an amplifying effect on the CO2 fivefold. Okay, so, so that is... Yeah. So, for every so we're adding water vapour, is that what you're correct. suggesting? We're putting more up into the atmosphere. And it traps heat, just like carbon dioxide and methane or nitrous oxide does. But if you go back to that initial thing, if you take that carbon through the plants into the soil. And by the way, there are organisms, both fungi and microbes, which I'm working with and others are working with, which can also take carbon dioxide directly from the atmosphere. So if you imagine if you take that carbon out of the atmosphere, either from the microbes or the plant, and of course both is ideal, then you're 
reducing the amplifying effect of turning up the gas fivefold. So the point of agency, the this the point of agency is to address the imbalance that's occurred in the water cycle, and that's by recoupling it, reconnecting it with the carbon cycle through plants and microbes. Yeah. Yes, because when we think of the significance, you've said huge, huge uh, figures with regards to increasing just 1% soil carbon. We increase the water holding capacity of the soil so, so enormously. Is that water literally coming from the atmosphere? If we hold more in the soil, does that mean that there's less in the atmosphere of water? A water vapour, yes, because it, it, it came through rain. <laughs> I mean, it, of course, you irrigate it, but even that came from rain too, uh, in, you know, as well unless you're using a desal plant or something. But uh, the thing is, yeah, most in, in an open agriculture, it's, it's, come, it's rainfall, and that came from condensation of water vapour, and it's stored in the soil. But it's stored in the, in the soil in a way that when you've got that soil, that you've got that carbon sponge structure, if you have a sponge, the water's yeah. absorbed by the sponge, held. but there's lots of holes in it. So it can breathe at the same time as whole water. And that's what soil should be, a soil carbon sponge. To me, everyone refers to the Keeling curve, where, where as you increase CO2, the average global temperature goes up, and we've seen that exponential growth. Now, healing, uh, Jimmy Carter, I'm a great fan of, he's probably one of the best presidents America's been blessed to have, and he engaged Keeling and said, please advise me what's happening when we're burning fossil fuels and is that adding to, will that add to climate change? This is in the early 80s, I think. And now Keeling said, we have to take out water vapour because water is so ubiquitous, so ephemeral, and there's so many ways in which it, it exists, and I'll explain that a bit later, that's impossible to model. So let's just take it out of the equation. And besides, how can man, you know, influence it? It's just everywhere. Well, the sad truth is the anthropogenic gases heat up the steam and create more water vapour, and that's holding more heat. What's critical is to understand as soil carbon goes up, water retention of the soil goes up, which means water vapour goes down, along with carbon dioxide. Water, carbon, and life go together. And they're, they're, a, trinity, they're a trinity, really. We have to think of living soils which require carbon as the backbone and water as the sustainer of life, the bearer and carrier of life. And unless we get that right in our, in our noggin, the paddock between the ears, we need a tectonic sh paradigm shift away from a carbon-centric fixated view of climate change to a broader, integrated water carbon perspective of climate change. And that will make an immense difference. And on calculations, which I won't go into, but inferred before, we could actually get to pre-industrial levels of CO2 if we really took this on board. How we can extend that further is cover crops. See, Plants are the air conditioners of the planet. We know that in an urban setting, if you've got trees, the ambient temperature under the trees in a cityscape is far less. Yes, yeah, yeah that makes logical sense. When you have the soil covered 100% of the time, all of the time, and there's many ways you can do that in your system, and it's something that uh, fascinates me and, and I will be doing work in, um, we can reduce the amount of loss of that all-important resource of water. There is a particular plant we have in Australia. It grows on the forest floor. It's called Comelina cyanide. It's got a beautiful, it's called cyanide, like cyan, cyan blue. 
It's got a beautiful vivid blue color. And it, when it grows on the forest floor, it, and if you, if you plant it consciously in, say, an orchard setting, you decrease the, the irrigation requirements by 75% because these plants are adapted to hold water, like the soil holds water, the plant holds the water. So we need to put a coat of armour on the soil, or I like to see nature as feminine or soil as feminine, and we, we, we need to clothe the soil in a green garment. We don't want to we don't want to expose the soil to the sun and get sunburn. And and those look, even having a cover crop, it's becoming more and more uh, practice. I know in the UK the government's even mandating it that way. In America it's up to seven percent and increasing year by year because the profits go up and so on and the input costs go down. But that practice alone can decrease greenhouse gas emissions by 30%. The, the, the agricultural greenhouse gas emissions can be reduced by 30%. So these are really, really huge figures. And if I could just take a step back, something that I've noticed as you've spoken, every statistic, every figure that you've mentioned is enormous. We're sort of talking about really large leaps. And with a lot of technology, that's the opposite. We we do a lot of things where we put in a lot of discovery for a very diminishing return every time that we progress forward. What you're talking about is vast leaps. And they're the sort of leaps that we need to take. But you're also describing a system that is tipping what we do completely on its head in order to get there. So this is um, an opportunity that we can move forward quite rapidly. But we need to have a really thorough understanding that what we are doing is actually very destructive. So regarding the soil, this is about respecting that the soil is not just dirt. The soil is not just something that we, comp we, it, we are taking from it. And in that taking from it, we're taking the carbon, we're taking the nutrition, and we are therefore depleting it. And you've mentioned we've probably only got 60 years left. If we continue what we're doing, 60 years. That, that is actually taking from depleting and then it's gone. So this is a crisis. This is something that needs to change. And with regards to climate change and this inevitable other crisis which would become food shortage and would become a health crisis these are all interlinked so the solution has many many connected solutions we're not just solving one thing we're solving many and this comes down to respect for the soil so could you help us because that we we have mentioned or we've touched on soil sequesters carbon and this is sort of the beautiful essence of how it all connects together. Could you put that into layman's terms for us so we can understand how that is working? The lot to bring back life, to regenerate the soil again, you've got to work with a water cycle in an efficient way. It's about water. And the you can't if you have water and you put it on the desk, it's going to flow. So you've got to have a cup. And that cup carbon. That cup is carbon. So so you can then drink the water, so to speak, that's ubiquitous, and the rivers of water in the atmosphere need to stream down to the soil via plants and microbes. And not only that, the, the microbes, and particularly the fungi, hold onto the water, and the plants also stop the loss of water back to the atmosphere their thermostats, their air conditioners. So it's about water. And if we keep talking, look, I've got no problem. I'd love to have a Tesla. You know, <laughs> I'd love to drive an electric car. You know, I'd love to fly an electric plane and electric boats and etc. I have no, I, 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 I love that stuff. But there's such an emphasis on that, that we're missing the water as the source of life. 
And if we don't work, work with a water cycle and all that it it intermingles and interfaces with, we're just missing the point. We're heading towards the iceberg on the Titanic and we're just rearranging a deck chair, so to speak. It's not an appropriate image for climate change because even the icebergs are melting, but I think you understand what I mean. And although I am a scientist and I work in research in different fields, and reductionism has, have, has its benefits, but when I mentioned before the erudite lecturer talking about nitrogen, they were using incredibly intricate reductionistic science to solve a problem that arose out of reductionism. So we've got to become holistic thinkers. We have to understand, and, and I say we need to dumb ourselves down in the sense we say, I know nothing. We make ourselves a vessel and we let nature talk to us what she needs, not what we impose. It's more of a... Happy to be ignorant because there's so yeah. much that we can absorb and keep learning then. Yeah. It's a feminine gesture of receptivity rather than imposing our will on nature because nature's always going to win. Before we continue with Christo, these interviews are taking us right around the world, but I appreciate the consistency of talking on the need to start taking a more holistic mindset. That's not an easy thing to explain, so I'd encourage you to go and listen to episode one with Caroline if you haven't done so already, as she offers some great insights to this within our discussion on regenerative agriculture. The talk here with Christo can seem very scientific at times, but I hope you're noticing those mirrored principles at the heart of things. The need to work with nature as a whole system and support soil by keeping it covered and reducing chemicals, for example. It really does highlight the significance that our food choices have on the planet, and I'm hoping to explore more in the future about the nutritional content of our food too, and how we can better wrap our heads around these options that we have regarding food labels and sourcing good stuff. Be sure to subscribe to keep updated. You can sign up at the website, wearecarbon.earth. And as we continue now with Christo, he moves us to a topic that can seem a little alarming. The idea that killing microbes within the soil kills them within our bodies too, and the knock-on impact of creating resistant bugs through these actions. There's a level of detail explained here due to Christo's PhD research, but for some background, I'd recommend checking out the fact-checked article that I've linked to in the description for an overview of the extensively used herbicide called Roundup that is mentioned here. Right, back to the discussion. The, the, the so-called convenience of using chemicals to get quick returns with diminishing returns over time. We know that microbes are vital for our gut, which is the base of our health. And we know the soil microbiome is important for, for soil health. Roundup, which is used extensively, I'm writing a book, uh, I'm adding a chapter to, chapters to a book called A Diet for a Cool Planet. And one of the headings based on some inspired by the COVID crisis is called superbugs and superweeds. The superweeds refers to the effect that if you if weeds have a purpose and we try to keep killing them, killing them, killing them, nature's going to outsmart us and create roundup resistant weeds. And they're like they're like triffids. You know, you, you can either use more poisons or you have to go through with slashes with a lot of horsepower to break these frankenside weeds down, right? It's incredibly um, intensive time and money. So, so the even the weeds are learning how to bypass Roundup. Why I refer to superbugs is that this is quite disturbing, actually. I was consulting on a, a, a trial in China an area where they grew 15% of the world's potatoes. And we were doing very vast areas. And um, I said to my colleague, who's a microbiologist, I said, I want you to anticipate problems before they arise, not after they've arised for me to come up and troubleshoot. And I said, be very attentive to the weather patterns. 
in other words, if you have a lot of moisture, you're going to create uh, situations where the potato blight will take over and knock out the crop. And anyhow, sure enough, uh, it got a, a blight. And, and you see these, it was like a gopher. It sort of pulled out every second plant. It was just dead. And there's a few straggly old potatoes amongst this decimated field of, of, of limp potatoes, leaves. And he said, well, what am I going to do? And I said, well, okay. <laughs> Interestingly, uh, you, can, you can use a, a very favoured soil micro called Bacillus subtilis, which we work a lot with in our 500 array of microbes in our soil inoculant, like taking probiotics for the soil, for our gut, for the soil. And it has this Bacillus subtilis. Bacillus subtilis gets rid of the baddies and promotes the good ones that promote plant health. Guess what Roundup does? It kills it. Roundup's second patent was an antibiotic. So it, it kills the good bacteria in the soil and promotes the ones that cause plant disease. And I said, we're well, going to have to spray the leaves and the soil with Bacillus subtilis to try and resurrect what you can. And I think the problem was seeded by the use of glyphosate in the past and probably present. Yes, yeah, so it's, it's destroyed the microbiome of the soil. Correct. So you got an so a lot of this comes down to acknowledging that the soil is alive, that the soil is filled with the fungus and the roots and the um, bacteria. And you're mentioning very specific bacteria names. So this is something that is being studied and researched and identified and isolated. And it's a huge area, isn't it? It's a huge topic that we're going to keep hearing about, I think, in terms of new yeah. discoveries of new soil bacteria and yeah. how we can benefit plants by understanding the biology and the nature yeah. and the, yeah. um, the system that's going on there instead of killing it. Yeah, well, I'm a bit of a freak in the sense that I've, I've worked in both agriculture and medicine. And yeah, that's, I, I <laughs> that's good. That's not a freak. Uh, well, I'm just being a bit dramatic, but uh, a bit of a drama queen. But, but uh, the thing is, um, I, I got the insight that really our intestinal lining is like we have soil inside us. And the microbiome is equivalent. I call it the parallel universe, that, that there is a microbiome in the gut and there's a microbiome in the soil. And what we do to the microbiome in the soil directly affects the microbiome in the gut, even getting friendly bacteria from the soil. And we know that. But when you use an antibiotic on the soil, I realized that the same process is happening in the gut, that the... What happened is that there's a particular pathway called the shikimate pathway, which Roundup blocks so the plant can't get vital trace elements, particularly manganese, which is a precursor molecule for making chlorophyll. And it weakens the plant and it's susceptible to disease and it, gets, it knocks out its immune system, et cetera, et cetera. And that the same parallels belong to us. So the thing is, in particular, GMO foods, which 60% of processed foods have got GMO in it. So it's inside each one of the plant cells has got Roundup because it's able to do that, right? Because they Roundup ready corn and, and soy, etc. What's happening is that the, the big mistake and the big lie is that it's harmless to human beings because we don't share the shikimata enzyme pathway. But we are outnumbered 10 to 1. We have 10 times as many microbes in our gut than we have cells. Yes. We're talking 100 trillion potentially. Mm. So do they have the shikimate pathway? <laughs> so Red. it's not affecting the human cells, but it's affecting the vast majority of well, yeah, look, the it microbes. Is, it is. But if the point of the, the real kicker is that it, it's an antibiotic and it's so specific that this blew my mind when I heard this. There's two expressions of the shikimate pathway. It's class one and class two. Class one, which is blocked by Roundup, 
all of the probiotics, the beneficial microbes in the soil and the gut have the class one enzymatic pathway. And they can't resist glyphosate, so they're not viable. The concept of antibiotic resistance like golden staph and, and uh, a number of other very virulent organisms that are potentially lethal, particularly the immunocompromised person, those bacteria, the baddies, have class two. And that confers antibiotic resistance, in other words, glyphosate resistance. And I'll come at it this way. If a person has to take antibiotics for whatever reason, you can get a, a proliferation by knocking out the good ones and, and promoting the ones that are resistant to the antibiotics. And one class called the Clostridia, and in particular Clostridia difficile. Clostridia difficile in the immunocompromised person is lethal. Clostridia difficile produces neurotoxins, and if those neurotoxins are present through a soy GMO diet in mice, they will manifest autistic-like symptoms because of the neurotoxins, and that's just one mechanism. So we are altering the ecology of the gut microbiome to favour disease and not health via the extraordinary so amount... So if we, if we break this down, we're taking an antibiotic because we're trying to attack a specific problematic bacteria. But as a result, we're actually wiping out all of the good, leaving a clean slate, essentially, and making opportunity for something other, an yeah. opportunist, um, very deadly, very resistant bacteria to take over. So we've we've tried to create a solution and we've created a bigger problem, essentially, that's affecting yeah. the body in unexpected ways. Now, it gets worse. I hope people aren't being depressed and we're going to have to end up with <laughs> those. Uh, but, yeah, we'll find one. Yeah, we will. But uh, uh, this is really the take-home message. When they exposed some of these microbes, like golden staff or whatever, to Roundup, that increased the antibiotic resistance a hundredfold. Okay, so that's, that's why, just extreme. That's why you can see in my book, A Diet for a Cool Planet, we are creating super weeds through Roundup and we're creating superbugs through Roundup. It's a worry. And I think we can turn this onto a good point because I think everything you're saying, we are essentially taking huge quantities of chemical nitrogen to fertilize the fields. We are adding things like Roundup in vast quantities. And these are hugely detrimental but on the other hand on the flip side this is hugely motivational this gives us a reason to get behind supporting practices that are organic because it's not just about the food on our plate it's about the emissions it's about the uh, releasing the carbon through the actual methods of plowing it's about the health of the oceans and ultimately about the um climate change and the, the heating of the atmosphere, it's all so interlinked and connected that we can actually put our efforts into healthy food produced in healthy ways. And actually we get benefits that we couldn't have expected because they're clearly all linked and they're clearly very, very broad. Yeah, to spin it, uh, you know, to, to put a positive spin, it's, you know, the word antibiotic, bio, biotic means life. So do you work with probiotics or do you work with antibiotics? Are we going, So are it's we, an attitude change. Do we work with things which are pro-life, supporting life, nurturing life, or do we work with things which are anti-life? And if you look at the evolution of pesticides, uh, you know, they, they came from gas warfare. If you look at uh, fertilisers, that came from TNT bomb-making. Uh, you know, we're waging a war against nature, and but we're part of nature, so we're waging a war against ourselves. Really, we need to go from a antibiotic uh, view of things, and all of the agrochemicals are in some way or other antibiotic. If it's a fungicide, it kills funguses. 
if it's a herbicide, it kills microbes, uh, and so on, to a probiotic view, which is we can use uh, agents like you know composted cow manure or even composted plants, which have microbes, which have digested the plant material, or we can actually add soil inoculants or probiotics as we do in the human situation. The, the summary point is this. We need to make the problem the solution in that if we see greenhouse gases as an untapped resource and through plants and microbes, we can harvest those nutrients and, and store them in the soil where water, microbes, nutrients are available in a very efficient cycling. And that all revolves around the most restorative thing we can do is for farmers to learn how to build a soil carbon sponge, and that is growing humus. Yeah, fantastic. It's uh, it, it's very, very big topics, this. Um, I, I know that you could, <laughs> you could probably teach us so much um, and it's an it's a pleasure speaking to you and and hearing all of these points I've really enjoyed it you've got quite a few um, projects that you're involved with did you want to mention any of those before we go yes yeah, thanks um, I I've been working in this area I, I went from cancer research um, uh, where the funding fell through um, and I will go back to that because, unfortunately, one in two people now is getting cancer in their lifetime, and it's just growing more and more. Uh, but that's something I have to revisit later. I'm currently engaged in a, a PhD project which is really about understanding the importance of maintaining the structural integrity and functioning of the gut wall barrier. And the gut wall barrier is best understood as being, if you got the the lining of the intestine, which has all these little convoluted you know, villi, uh, and you stretch it out, it would be equivalent to this area of a football field, but it's only as thin as rice paper. Okay. And on that platform, rests the foundation of our health or the entry of disease. Yeah. And there's, very, three very there's three protective layers for the gut wall barrier. One is the microbiome, which glyphosate destroys. The second is the mucin layer, which is a, it's like a relay station. It's a filter bed. It's, it, 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 it serves for communication between microbe to microbe, microbe to immune system, microbe to brain. And that's destroyed by Roundup. The third point is what we call the tight junctions. And these, it's so thin because it's only one cell thick. And they're like little columns. They're called columnar cells. And they're attached side by side, standing shoulder to shoulder, with a thing that's Velcro-like. They're called tight junctions. And tight junctions have to open up on a very controlled mechanism through a thing called zolidin. And that will open up. It's, it's like a, 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 a weir in a, in, when you've got these boats going through a weir. It, it, it opens one gate, closes, open one's gate, closes, open one's gate, closes. It's got three gates. And that's it. And that, that's what separates the outside world, which is inside the tube of the gut, to the inside world, which is predominantly 70% of the immune system cells wrapped around the gut tube. So there are macromolecules, larger molecules, that have to open up under the influence of zolidin, like a gatekeeper, to allow the big molecule to come in and close. What does Roundup do? It increases zolidin, so you open up the floodgates. And what floods in is the bowel content, the foods which cause food allergies. The problem with gluten sensitivity is a gluten 
it's a it's a glyphosate sensitivity. Mm. I'm not. Talking and we're about, seeing a lot of this increase. I'm not talking about celiacs. That's a separate entity. So we're basically our health pivots on this tiny little thing called the tight junction. Our whole health. Because when you get the floodgates opening and the bowel contents hitting the immune system, it starts a ignites an inflammatory cascade, and all the chronic diseases are related to inflammation. So, so like water is the central thing for planetary health and the regulator of our warmth, the warmth of our planet. And currently, guy has got premature. Hot flushes, you know, <laughs> and, and we and 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 the woman sweats to cool, and and currently what's happening is that the planet is sweating, so to speak, and creating more water vapor, which is heating up the atmosphere. And and so we need these protective linings, which is like the gut. We have the the microbiome, and then we have the vegetation to protect the water. So there's a huge connection between our gut health and the actual, the health of the soil. The, the, in terms of analogies, they're very similar and they need looking after and respecting in their complexity. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so that's probably enough. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a pleasure. And thank you very much for speaking with us. And thank you for listening to this episode of We Are Carbon. Next time, we'll be hearing from Nicola Peel for a discussion that takes us to the rainforests of South America as we unravel the true value of biodiversity along with our existing standing stores of carbon that are at impending risk of being cut down. You can keep up to date with everything from We Are Carbon by subscribing on the website or following along on Instagram. Search for wearecarbon.earth. And let's keep figuring this all out together.